Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. Welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Geld, the host of the documentary Open Your Eyes. According to the Journal of Circulation, 180,000 people die each year from sugary beverages such as soda and sports drinks. In addition, we've been told by experts for the past 40 years to eat low fat and count calories to prevent obesity, diabetes, and chronic disease. Consequently, over the past 40 years, obesity, diabetes, and chronic disease has skyrocketed. Today's guest, Dr. Robert Lustig, pediatric neuroendocrinologist, is a world expert on this topic. He has authored numerous books, including New York Times bestseller, Fat Chance, and The Hacking of the American Mind. Dr. Lustig has authored over 120 peer-reviewed articles, but he's probably best known for his life-changing YouTube lecture, with over 10.5 million views. Sugar, the bit of truth. Dr. Lustig, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Yell. I appreciate it. Every time I hear that uh, number, I just sort of freak out. <laughs> it's like, why in the world would anyone want to watch that? <laughs> but they do. Uh, it was really an amazing, it really was life-changing for me back 10 years ago when I watched it. And you know, every so often I'll check to see how many views it gets, and it seems like it gets a hundred thousand a week. It's really incredible. What's the backstory with that lecture? How'd that happen? Uh, well, it was uh, just a, a part of a series that UCSF, my uh, school, uh, does for the public, mini med school for the public, and there was a, a six-week uh, uh, nutrition module, and they asked me to speak, and they didn't care what I spoke about as long as it was about nutrition. And so I gave a talk and I thought I was giving a talk to 200 people in the audience. And that was the end of that. And I didn't even know it was being uh, videotaped. If I'd known, I would have worn a better tie. Um, you know, got a lot of flack over that tie. My mother had given me that tie. So anyway, um, uh, the next thing I know, uh, things climbing and uh, people are not recognizing me on the street. And it's, it's been pretty bizarre. I have to say, um, it, it, it certainly made it very clear what the word viral means. So take me to the beginning. Where did the whole low-fat diet come from and calories don't matter? Where did we go wrong 40, 50 years ago? Okay, so calories don't matter, okay? And the reason calories don't matter, everyone thinks calories matter, right? And the reason they think that is because of a, uh, an equation uh, from 1916 called the Atwater equation that uh, was basically trying to uh, equi generate equivalence between protein, carbohydrate, and fat. And when you burn protein or carbohydrate or fat in a bomb calorimeter, you know, they give off different amounts of energy. And so it was assumed that if you ate something that was high energy, well, then that contributed to weight gain. Uh, that was 
discounting so many different things, including the microbiome, which we now know about. It was excluding the fact that there's this thing called nutritional biochemistry, that where not every calorie gets burned the same way. So a calorie eaten might even be a calorie eaten, but a calorie burned is not a calorie burned. So the whole thing just falls apart. But nonetheless, you know, it became the uh, standard for the American Dietetic Association. And the reason was because that was math. You could do math and, you know, equation, you know, the, and, you know, the, but it was really science. And science is hard. Math is easy. Science is hard. Anyway, it caught, and, and there were a lot of people who were, you know, very married to this idea. There still are. Um, you know, we're just chipping away at this very, very slowly. So that was the notion of the, the calorie story. The second thing was the fat story. And that dates back to the years uh, in the 1950s and 1960s when we thought that saturated fat was the bad guy. Now, why did we think that? Because um, uh, Eisenhower had a heart attack in 1955. And everybody wanted to know what was going on with the increasing uh, uh, incidence of heart attacks across the country. And two camps uh, came out. One was that it was saturated fat, and that was led by a gentleman by the name of Ansel Keys, who became very famous, was on the front cover of Time magazine back in, the, uh, in, 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 the, in 1980, I believe. And the other one was a British physiologist, nutritionist by the name of John Yudkin, who said that sugar was the bad guy. And these two duped it out over the course of a 20-year period. Uh, Keyes was very forceful and pretty obnoxious. He was kind of like the Donald Trump of nutrition at the time. And no one was going to get in his way. And Yudkin was much more unassuming and, you know, would never, like, call out names in public. Uh, you know, so it was a very, very similar vibe to what we see today. But there were three things that we learned in the 1970s that sort of Keyes won and Yudkin got thrown under the bus. The first was we learned about this molecule in the bloodstream called LDL. We learned that LDL was, you know, a bad guy in heart disease. Then we learned about the fact that dietary fat raised your LDL. And then the last thing we learned in the late 70s was that LDL levels in large populations correlate with heart disease. So if dietary fat is A and LDL is B and heart disease is C, we learned, well, if A leads to B and B correlates with C, therefore A must lead to C, therefore no A, no C, get rid of the dietary fat, the LDL levels will fall and heart disease will go away. And that was the end of John Yudkin. And we adopted the low-fat diet. And the first dietary guidelines called for reduction in fat. Now, why did the food industry go along with that? Because then they got to create two sets of foodstuffs, regular fat and low-fat. And it's not like the fat just disappeared. Like, for instance, when they skimmed the cream off the milk, they didn't just, you know, that didn't just disappear. What'd they do? They made cheese. Okay, and they got two products for the price of one. You know, great business strategy, All right? And even, you know, the, the beef industry learned to adapt. And it's not like our meat consumption went down. 
you know, they would offer lower fat alternatives of various, uh, you know, cuts of meat. So this actually worked for the food industry and we all went low fat. And, you know, my father ate those Entenmann's fat-free cakes and there's no doubt in my mind that's how he got his heart attack. So this, this notion, you know, continues to pervade even today. It is very hard to debunk mythology, as I'm sure you know, but we are doing it step by step. And uh, what we have learned is LDL is not the problem. Triglycerides are the problem. And triglycerides are actually the manifestation of what the liver does to sugar. Because when you sugar overflows the liver, the liver has no choice but to take that and to turn into liver fat, and it gets packaged as triglycerides. And the hazard risk ratio for LDL is only 1.3. The hazard risk ratio for triglycerides for heart disease is 1.8. So we've been focusing on the wrong molecule. We've been focusing on the wrong substrate. We've basically turned the food pyramid on, the, on its head, get, you know, increasing the amount of carbohydrate and decreasing the amount of fat. And all it has done is made us sicker and sicker. And of course, Einstein's theory of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, you know what? It's time for a, a new paradigm and people are finally ready for it. There's a, another myth, everything in moderation. Can you talk about that? So that sounds good. You know, that plays well on a bumper sticker. But the fact of the matter is, there is no moderation. So where does moderation come from? So there is a hormone in your fat cells called leptin. And leptin goes from your fat cells to your brain and tells your brain, hey, I have enough energy on board to engage in expensive metabolic processes, such as puberty, pregnancy. You don't go into puberty until your leptin levels hit a certain amount. You can't support a pregnancy unless your leptin levels are above a certain threshold, okay? So what leptin is, is it's not the satiety signal, it's the starvation signal. If your leptin level is below a set point in your brain, your brain infers that as starvation, that there's not enough energy on board and that you have to both eat more and conserve. And so there's your gluttony and sloth. So the behaviors that we manifest around food are actually being driven by this hormone called leptin. Now, the point is you're supposed to eat, you're supposed to then make more leptin and therefore the leptin should tell the brain, hey, I'm finished. And that should be the yin yang negative energy balance, you know, keep you in, uh, in homeostasis uh, uh, so that you don't gain more weight. However, turns out, that the hormone insulin, the one that drives the energy into fat, also blocks the leptin signal at the level of the brain. And there's you know, two reasons why insulin would block leptin. Because there are two times in your life you actually have to gain weight. One is puberty and the other is pregnancy. And if, you, if your leptin worked all the time, then you couldn't go into puberty and you couldn't go into pregnancy and the species would die out. So it's actually adaptive for leptin to block insulin two times in your life. But the problem is now our insulin's up 24 seven, 365. And the insulin's blocking the leptin signal all the time. Our brains think we're starving all the time. And so that's the reason for the increased food intake. So 
in the face of a leptin resistance, in the face of leptin not working, moderation is useless. There's, you know, there is no moderation because this is biochemically driven. So when we look at when we're addicted to food, fat, salt, sugar mixed together to create a bliss point, the, the, the scientists at the food companies are very sharp at being able to find that bliss point to make us addicted. Right. What can we do to help prevent it? And can you go into that in a little bit of detail? So you brought up a new, new concept, and that is food addiction. So leptin actually also extinguishes reward at the level of the reward center of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. So when your leptin levels are high, you don't get all that reward. You don't need all that candy or that chocolate or, you know, that Cinnabon. But when you're leptin resistant, haha, you sure do. So the question is, what drives the reward signal? And it turns out there's only one thing, sugar. Salt does not drive the reward signal. Fat does not drive the reward signal. Only sugar. Sugar is, for lack of a better word, addictive. Now, and it makes sense that that would be the case. You hear people saying all the time, oh, I have a horrible sweet tooth. You know what that is? That's sugar addiction. So not everyone is addicted to the same extent. I mean, think of it like this. Okay, if you're exposed to heroin for three days, you're an addict. If you're exposed to cocaine for a week, you're an addict. If you're exposed to cigarettes for a month, you're an addict. If you're exposed to alcohol, maybe you are or maybe you're not. 40% of America are teetotalers. 40% are social drinkers. Pick up a beer, put it down, no problem. 20% have a real alcohol problem and 10% are hardcore alcoholics. Now, what determines who's who? I don't know. We don't know the answer to that yet, but it's very clear that alcohol is not uniformly addicting. Same with sugar. There are some people who are not addicted by sugar, and there are some people who are extraordinarily addicted by sugar. So the question is, if you are a sugar addict and your reward center is going hog wild and you can't stay away from the stuff, how can you fix it? And that's complicated. We have modalities, there are ways. A lot of them are the same things we use for alcoholics and the same thing we use for smoking. Uh, cold turkey does work, but there is a withdrawal phase, lasts about five days. Those five days are pretty darn unpleasant, okay? But you can come out the other side, not too bad. You don't get the shakes or the DTs like you would with alcohol, but you know, you're, you're, you're still squirming in your seat, but you can get past it. Uh, there are medications that can be used like uh, 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 Wellbutrin, and naltrexone and some other things, you know, but, but those are heavy duty and you need a doctor's uh, uh, help, you know, for any of those. What I can say is that the people who are the most sugar addicted are the people who can't turn away from processed food because processed food is where the sugar is hiding. And the thing is that you can try to get off sugar. You can stop the ice cream and the candies and the sweets and the, you know, and the cookies. But the fact of the matter is half of the sugar in your diet is in foods you didn't even know had it, like yogurt, barbecue sauce, hamburger buns, hamburger beef, salad dressing. So if you're going to go cold turkey, 
that means you got to basically stop processed food. You got to eat real food, food without a food label. So if a food has a label, that means it's been processed. If a food has a label, it's a warning label. So if we, if you can get people who are sugar addicted onto real food, they will do great. But, you know, getting them to understand why and, you know, stick with it. That's the tough part. There are plenty of people that do well. And then at night they get these terrible cravings. What can they do instead of eating something sugary? Can they eat a fruit to kind of get them through that those five days? Yes. And fruit has sugar. So people say, well, what about fruit all the time? The answer is fruit is sweet and that's okay. Okay. The question is, does the sugar enter your bloodstream? And the answer is not that much. Most of the sugar ends up staying in your intestine because the fruit has fiber. There are two kinds of fiber, soluble and insoluble. So soluble fiber is like pectins, like what holds jelly together. Insoluble fiber is like cellulose, like the stringy stuff in celery. Okay, whole fruit has both. When you consume a piece of whole fruit, the insoluble fiber forms like a fishnet, like a latticework on the inside of your intestine, inside your duodenum, first part of your intestine. The soluble fiber are like globules. They plug the holes in that latticework. And together, they form an impenetrable secondary barrier on the inside of your intestine. You can actually see it on electron microscopy. And what that does is it prevents about 30 to 40% of what you ate from being absorbed early because of this barrier. And what that means is that the liver doesn't get the onslaught. And that means that the liver is not going to turn into liver fat, which means you're not going to get insulin resistant. So that's good. In addition, because you didn't absorb it early, it goes further down the intestine to the next part called the jejunum. And that's where the bacteria are, the microbiome. And they chew it up instead. So even though you consumed it, you actually never received it because your bacteria hijacked it before you had a chance to absorb it and you fed your bacteria. So any food that protects the liver and feeds the gut, protecting the liver from the glycemic excursion and from making liver fat, and feeds the gut so that the microbiome is happy and so you don't end up with inflammation. Any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. And any food that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. And of course, processed food, does neither. How about fruit juice? Fruit juice has soluble fiber. So it does one thing. So yes, it does have the soluble fiber. The soluble fiber will go along with the juice. But the insoluble fiber has been strained out. And that insoluble fiber is what allows that gel to form. So you are not protecting your liver. So your liver is getting the onslaught anyway. And so that, and it's been shown that fruit juice predicts diabetes and heart disease just as sugared beverages, uh, you know, like a soda does. Uh, a little, you know, not quite as potent, but still very clinically significant. Are there any times when you want to eat, when you want to eat foods that have sugar in it? Like if you're a high intense athlete to store the glycogen? So you don't need to eat sugar, if you're a high um, intensity athlete, 
and you've been, say, on the gridiron for three hours, you are glycogen depleted, and you want to replete the glycogen. Now, over the course of 24 hours, when you go out onto the gridiron again, you will have repleted your glycogen. Okay, so you don't have to consume sugar to do that. However, it has been shown that the molecule fructose, the sweet molecule in sugar, will replete your glycogen faster if you are glycogen depleted. So that's why there's Gatorade, is because it will actually replete your glycogen stores fast as opposed to slow. So I suppose there is a value to, for the elite athlete. However, if you have not burned off your glycogen stores and you consume that sports drink instead, all you're doing is flooding the liver, turning that into liver fat because your liver only stores so much glycogen. And when you get the onslaught, that's gonna become liver fat, that's gonna drive chronic metabolic disease, and that's gonna drive insulin resistance, that's gonna drive metabolic syndrome, heart disease, diabetes, et cetera. So the bottom line is there's a place for it. It's just shouldn't be in the supermarket. It should just be on the, you know, uh, on the side of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the uh, football uh, 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 training table. So when you have these little kids that go to elementary school with uh, Gatorade in their lunchbox. Right. That's pure marketing. You know, so. That's just pure marketing. So let's talk about fructose. I mean, you're an ex world expert on fructose. Tell me the difference between fructose and, and uh, glucose. And, but before we do that, what's the difference between uh, sugar and fasting blood sugar, the, the blood sugar we have in our body? Very good. Excellent questions. Okay. There are three, not one, but three separate terms that have been misused by the food industry on purpose. And that's part of what I'm doing here is helping to debunk. Okay. One is weight, because weight is now synonymous with health. And that couldn't be further from the truth. There are plenty of thin, sick people, and there are plenty of fat, healthy people. Now, the second one is fat, because there's dietary fat, and then there's the fat around your middle. And they're not the same either. And it turns out dietary fat does not contribute to the fat around your middle. And then finally, the, what you just talked about, which is sugar. There is dietary sugar, the sweet stuff, the stuff in the cookies, the cakes, the ice cream, and there is blood sugar. They are not the same either. So dietary sugar is two molecules hooked together. One glucose, one fructose hooked together. High fructose corn syrup is one glucose, one fructose, just not hooked together, free. The enzyme in your intestine cleaves that bond between them in about a nanosecond. You absorb the two molecules. So sucrose, table sugar, and high fructose corn syrup are exactly the same because they're one glucose, one fructose. No difference. Now, the question is blood sugar versus dietary sugar. So dietary sugars, there's two molecules. Blood sugar is just glucose. Now, it is true that if you consume glucose, your blood glucose will rise. That's true. If you consume fructose, does your blood glucose rise? No, because fructose is not glucose. Instead of your blood glucose rising, your blood fructose rises. 
You don't capture that in a blood glucose. So there are people who say, well, sugar is good because it's low glycemic index. This not notion that you know, how high your blood glucose rises after a given meal has something to do with weight gain and disease. That is complete canard. That is total trash. It has got to be deposited in the circular file. And I will show you why. There are two reasons that that is just a bad thesis. Okay. So it is true that if you eat something with glucose, your blood glucose will rise. That is true. So white bread will make your blood glucose rise fastest. That is, has a glycemic index of 100. Okay, let's take something else. Let's take carrots. Okay, carrots are good for you, right? Got vitamin A, helps with the eyesight, blah, blah, blah. All right, turns you orange, whatever. Um, carrots have a glycemic index of 94. Now, that's high. 94, glycemic index. So there are dietitians out there who say, oh, don't eat carrots. They have a high glycemic index. Crap. Complete and utter crap. Here's why. It is true that carrots have a glycemic index of 94. So what does that mean? That means that if you consume 50 grams of carbohydrate in carrots, your blood glucose will go pretty high. That's true. It doesn't matter. And the reason is because how many grams of carrots do you have to eat to get the 50 grams of carbohydrate? Turns out you have to eat 700 grams of carrots. 1.4 pounds of carrots in order to get 50 grams of carbohydrate. So it is true that carrots have a high glycemic index, but they have a low glycemic load. GL, not GI, glycemic load. And that's what counts because the fiber mitigates all of these things because you're not gonna eat the 50 grams of carbohydrate in carrots because okay? you're gonna have stopped eating way before that because of the fiber. So that's the first reason why this whole concept of GI, glycemic index, is a canard because all real food is low glycemic load because all real food comes with its inherent fiber. The second reason why glycemic index is a joke is because of fructose. So fructose has a very low glycemic index. It has a glycemic index of 19. That's very low. And the reason is because it doesn't raise your serum glucose. It raises your serum fructose. And the problem is when your serum fructose rises, it does seven times the same level of damage that glucose does in terms of oxygen radicals, in terms of what we call oxidative stress, in terms of the browning or the Maillard reaction, which are all the things that happen in aging. So when you consume an orange juice, you are aging seven times faster. So, and that's not captured within the concept of glycemic index. So real food fixes the problem. Processed food creates the problem. And glycemic index is irrelevant. Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. Is there a difference between high fructose corn syrup and corn syrup? A slight one, yes. Uh, so corn syrup is like what you put in a cake, all right, like Cairo syrup. High fructose corn syrup has had an enzyme 
reaction done, which has taken some called glucose oxidase, which has taken some of the glucose and turned it to fructose to make it sweeter. So corn syrup gets converted to high fructose corn syrup by an enzymatic reaction, specifically to generate the fructose molecule to make it sweeter. So there is a slight difference. And the reaction on the body, is there much of a difference? A little bit. I mean, because, you know, glucose will, riot, will make your insulin go up. That's true. But fructose will make that liver fat. So they are not absolutely equivalent. So how does fructose affect insulin? So... Fructose does three things that glucose does not. The first is fructose can only be metabolized in the liver. Glucose can be metabolized in all organs. Every cell on the planet can burn glucose for energy. Glucose is so goddamn important that if you don't consume it, your body makes it. It will turn amino acids or fatty acids into glucose. Okay? It's a process called gluconeogenesis. It's what the Eskimos do. It's what the people who are on a ketogenic diet do. They still have a serum glucose level, even though they're not consuming any glucose because their liver will make it. Now, fructose is only metabolized by the liver as opposed to glucose where all the cells metabolize it. So when you consume a fructose load, it all ends up in the liver. The liver does not turn it into glycogen whereas it does turn glucose into glycogen. And it will go further down the glycolytic pathway to a, a molecule called pyruvate, which then enters the mitochondria. And the mitochondria are those little ener uh, energy burning factories, you know, like coal burning factories inside each cell that generate the chemical energy called ATP. But each mitochondrion in your cell has a limited capacity. It can be overwhelmed. If you supply uh, too much energy to a mitochondrion, it can't deal with the tsunami. It will then divert the excess back out of the mitochondria through a side door and called citrate. And that citrate will then act as the nidus for starting this process called de novo lipogenesis, new fat making. And so you will have turned sugar, fructose, into fat. And this is what John Yudkin originally postulated but couldn't prove. We've proven it. We've shown how this works and at what level. And then that fat has one of two fates. It can either be exported out of the liver as triglyceride. Remember, we talked about triglyceride, which increases your risk for heart disease. Or it won't make it out. It will precipitate as a lipid droplet and now you have fatty liver disease, in which case now you are insulin resistant, and now you will have, are at risk for type 2 diabetes. So when you make fat out of sugar, you're courting disaster, because you're going to die of a chronic disease. And fructose is the primary driver of this process. So that's one way fructose is different. The second way fructose is different is fructose causes that browning reaction, the Maillard reaction. And this is important actually for optometrists because that Maillard reaction is going on in the retina. And it's one of the reasons for macular degeneration. It's one of the reasons for cataracts because what's happening is it's denaturing the proteins in the lens because the glucose molecules or the fructose molecules are binding to it. And it turns out that the Maillard reaction is driven seven times faster.
by fructose than by glucose. So sugar causes wrinkles, sugar causes cataracts, sugar causes you know, eye disease in general, and of course sugar causes every other chronic metabolic disease, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia. And part of the reason is because of glycation and oxidative stress. And fructose does it seven times faster. The third reason fructose is different is because fructose stimulates the reward center, driving that uh, addiction that we talked about before. Glucose does not stimulate the reward center. It stimulates other parts of the brain, but not the reward center. And so when you get a little sugar, you want a lot more because this feels good. I want more. And glucose doesn't really do that. You don't see people going around chugging carrier syrup. That's glucose. So those three pathways, de novo lipogenesis, the aging reaction, and continued consumption because of reward. Those are the ways fructose is different from glucose. Let's talk about pre-diabetes. If we could prevent people from getting diabetes, uh, what are some of the signs and some of the symptoms and some of the blood tests, the labs that you recommend that people do to see if you're at risk for pre, if you're pre-diabetic and at risk for becoming diabetic? Sure. So actually all of this is going to be addressed in a new book that I am writing, which will be out in March. Uh, the, uh, the provisional title at the moment is Food, Pharma, Feds, Fiasco. <laughs> They'll change that. What? They may change that on you. They may, they may. But there are five more Fs to go behind that. There's fat, farm, fructose, fiber, and one I can't talk, say on the, on the internet. <laughs> um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. That, that, that title may change. But anyway, um, uh, what I do is I actually tell the uh, uh, reader what lab tests they have to tell their doctor to get and how to interpret them because likely their doctor doesn't know how to interpret them. Everyone thinks the uh, uh, lab test to do is a hemoglobin A1C. That's the standard test to look for diabetes. That's true, it is the standard test to look for diabetes. It's also the standard test to look for prediabetes. If your hemoglobin A1C is going up, you are so far behind the eight ball. The horse is so far out of the barn. Okay, it is the last thing to change. By far and away, the last thing to change. Okay, you should be looking upstream at things that change earlier in order to be able to stop the process rather than have to recoup uh, at that late date. Okay, so how can you tell whether or not you have metabolic disease or are metabolically ill in any way? There are several lab tests that can help you answer that. The first is not even a lab test. It's um, cheap, free, in fact. Okay, it's a waist circumference. Because a waist circumference tells you about visceral fat and liver fat. And if your visceral and liver fat are up because your waist circumference is up, okay, you already have a metabolic problem. And that's free. Now, after that, then the tests get a little bit more expensive. What you need is a fasting insulin level, and the American Diabetes Association doesn't believe in fasting insulin because fasting insulin does not correlate with obesity, and that is true. It correlates with metabolic disease because there are thin, sick people and fat, healthy people. It's not about the obesity. 
trying to get this through to the American Diabetes Association has, you know, really been a strain, I got to tell you. Um, uh, another test that you need is uh, an ALT, alanine aminotransferase. This is a test that tells you about fatty liver. Now, if you look at the side of the uh, lab slip, you know, there's a column that has an H or an L in it, high, low. You know why there's a column? That's 10 bucks. Okay, that's an interpretation. You get to charge 10 bucks for that. When you look there, it's because there's a reference range. And the reference range for ALT is up to 40. Garbage. When I entered medical school in 1976, the upper limit for ALT was 25. Today it's 40. Same test. We went from 25 to 40. How come? Why was 25 normal then and 40 normal now? Because we're all getting fatter. Because everyone's got fatty liver disease, okay? And they don't know it, okay? And so the whole curve shifted to the right. So 25 is the upper limit of normal, but that's not what the lab slip says. So you have to know that in order to be able to interpret it right. So if your ALT is 30, you got a problem already. And that will show up a lot sooner than your A1, hemoglobin A1C. Uh, another one that's important is uric acid. Uric acid is a proxy for sugar consumption. And the higher it is, then probably the more sugar you're consuming. It's also a pro uh, proxy for meat consumption as well. So you have to be a little careful in terms of uh, evaluating it, but it's still very helpful. Um, uh, so these are the tests. And then of course, you know, fasting glucose, again, horses out of the barn. And there are a couple of other tests that are, you know, a little bit more um, specific and selective, but they cost a lot more money and, you know, they're, they're listed in the book. Um, but those are the tests that I think are the most important. Fasting insulin, ALT, and uric acid. You pretty much can figure out who's got metabolic disease from those. With uric, with uric acid, if you could talk about how kids that have high blood pressure from eating uh, fructose and giving allopurinol and lowering the blood pressure. If you could tell that story. I can. So uh, the reason that sh uh, uh, people think salt is the bad guy for hypertension. And I'm not gonna tell you salt's a good guy for hypertension, it's not a good guy, but it's not nearly the bad guy it's made out to be. It is true that some people, about 20% of the population are exquisitely salt sensitive. And Richard Lifton at Yale has done all the genetics on this. Okay. But most people can actually excrete a salt load okay. All right. And in the old days, remember, I mean, how did we used to preserve fish and meats? We used to salt cure them. So in the old days, you know, prior to refrigeration, we used to get 15 grams of salt a day. And we didn't have hypertension. Today, we get 6.9 grams of salt on average. Okay, and 40% of people have high blood pressure. So how come? We, you know, we're eating you know, one-third the amount of salt we used to, and now we've got high blood pressure. And the reason is because it's not really about the salt. It is for some, but not for most. Turns out sugar causes high blood pressure. And the reason is because sugar increases the excretion from the liver of uric acid. Um, when... Uh, fructose, or glucose for that matter, but fructose primarily because it's in the liver, is phosphorylated in order to uh, uh, prepare it for energy metabolism. 
uh, you have to add an, uh, a phosphate group. So fructose becomes fructose 1-phosphate. That has to come from ATP. So ATP has to be converted to ADP, adenosine diphosphate, which then becomes uric acid. And so uric acid is a necessary byproduct of sugar metabolism. That uric acid then leaves the liver, circulates in the bloodstream, uh, binds to an enzyme in your blood vessels called endothelial nitric oxide synthase, ENOS, and inhibits it. And nitric oxide is your endogenous blood pressure lower. It's the thing that relaxes the vascular smooth muscle all over your body and keeps your blood pressure down. But if you're inhibiting the enzyme that makes it, your blood pressure goes up. And so sugar consumption is associated with both uric acid and hypertension. And if you block uric acid synthesis with a medicine such as allopurinol, which is what we give people for gout, you also make their blood pressure go down. So, you know, this is a big issue. A colleague of mine, Stephanie Wynn, and I once wrote a, uh, an article called Just a Spoonful of Sugar Helps the Blood Pressure Go Up. <laughs> yeah. So people with fasting, there are patients that have high fasting blood sugar, but their blood sugar is normal throughout the day. The only time their blood sugar is high is in the morning. What does that mean? Hell if I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not clear. Um, some people have a, a very high cortisol rise, and so they get a bigger blood glucose boost in the morning. Some people don't. Uh, you know, some people, uh, you know, have uh, 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 a glucokinase mutation, and so they're not clearing uh, blood glucose at the same level, so they tend to run higher blood glucoses. Really, the, it's the postprandial glucose excursion that dictates what's going to happen. So that higher blood glucose in the morning may or may not be a problem. It, you know, I mean, certainly pre-diabetics, if it's a sign of pre-diabetes, then, you know, yes, you need to deal with it. Our insulin levels have gone up over the last 40, 50 years, like two and a half percent. Or more. Or more. Or fold. Which is more dangerous, high insulin, high glucose? Are they equally dangerous? Why don't doctors check for insulin? Right. <laughs> Very good question, Dr. Yell. So the answer is, they're both important. They both predict disease, but they predict different diseases. So high blood glucose predicts microvascular disease, small vessel disease, retinopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy, the small vessel disease of diabetes. Okay, And so glycemic excursion will contribute to small vessel disease. No argument there. Absolutely. But insulin contributes to large vessel disease, like coronary disease or aortic disease, okay? Or, you know, iliac, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lewis syndrome, uh, you know, not enough blood going to the, uh, to the legs. Uh, and that will kill you just as well. And so it's been shown many times over now in numerous studies, the UK PDS, the advanced study, the ACCORD study, that control of the blood glucose in type two diabetics will reduce your hemoglobin A1C, will reduce your nephropathy, neuropathy, and retinopathy. That's true. And you will die just the same. And you will have died of heart disease anyway. <laughs>
And the reason is because you have actually made your large vessel disease worse by giving more insulin. And the reason is because insulin has its own effects because it causes vascular smooth muscle proliferation. So insulin has two separate pathways in the cell. One is called AKT, and AKT is the metabolic piece of insulin's effects. And getting AKT up will get your glucose down, which is why the small vessel disease gets better. But there's a second pathway that insulin affects, and it's called MAP kinase. MAP kinase is the cell proliferation pathway. And so insulin is a growth modulator. It is a cell proliferator. It causes vascular smooth muscle proliferation. It causes cancer. High insulin drives cancer, causes cell division. Well, you don't want that. The problem is every insulin molecule gives you both at the same time. You can't dissociate those two you know, subcellular pathways. So insulin is both good for you and bad for you. The goal is get your insulin down by being insulin sensitive. That's the goal. So that's why they're both important, but for different reasons. What are the best ways to get insulin levels down? Real food. Are there any supplements that you could recommend? People that switch to real food, but they still have high insulin. Is there a genetic component? Because I've seen it where they go to real food, they go low carb, they do everything they're supposed to. They're, they're fasting and two hour insulin is still, is still high. What could help them? Right. I, I, I know what you're talking about. So real food will help the overwhelming majority of people. Yes, there are some outliers who do not seem to be helped as much. Those people might need a ketogenic diet or you know, a very low carb diet, and I would try that first. There are other medicines that can help with insulin sensitivity like metformin. So metformin is a, you know, definitely you know, back pocket drug that we use pretty routinely in terms of trying to improve insulin sensitivity. And the reason is because metformin works in the right place. It works on the liver, which is where it's needed. And it also works on the processes that are driving chronic disease. Okay, it's working on both insulin resistance and it's also working on autophagy, which is the clearing out of senescent dead cells, which is one of the problems in, uh, in chronic disease. So it's, it's well targeted. So metformin is a good uh, adjunct to dietary change, but metformin won't work without the dietary change. You gotta do the dietary change first anyway. And then there are some other drugs that are being, um, you know, tried that are in clinical trials to try to improve things as well. And there's some longevity drugs that are sort of out there like NAD riboside and um, uh, uh, other things as well. So, um, but they're not, they're not really ready for prime time yet. Because then you bring up NAD, some people are recommending metformin as anti-aging. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Neil, Neil Barzilai at Albert Einstein College of Medicine is doing an entire double-blind placebo-controlled trial of metformin and aging. And I understand why that sh could work and should work. And I'm for it, you know, uh, in, in terms of a trial. I am not for it in terms of everyone going out and taking metformin. And how about this NAD? Do you see, what kind of potential do you see with that? 
Potentially. It, I, it also acts at a specific place in the aging pathway. It's possible it could work, but um, it, it certainly works in the dish. But, you know, getting a subcellular uh, um, uh, nutrient to the right place in the cell is actually a lot harder than it looks. So the fact that it works in a dish, it doesn't mean it, it works in a person. And I know that there is a company, you know, Elysium, uh, you know, that, that's specifically, you know, uh, you know, targeted to this issue. And I know Lenny Guarenti from MIT. We've had coffee together twice. Um, we we're on a panel together. You know, it's, it's, it's yet to be determined. Let's talk about some of the medications that are used for diabetes. Medications that raise insulin, such as the sulfur ureas, insulin itself. Uh, and what, what, how about some of the new medication as, such as the SGLT2 inhibitors? Right. So these are all for diabetes. They're not for insulin resistance per se. The SGLT2 inhibitors seem to be a useful adjunct for treating the diabetes. And the reason is because it gets the blood glucose down because it makes the kidney lose glucose. That's why. So if it's leaving the bloodstream through the kidney, not so bad, right? And we're still trying to figure out whether or not all that glucose running through the kidney is hurting the kidney or not. There's some data suggesting that maybe there, that's not so benign. Um, here's the problem. What you are doing there with any of those drugs is you are treating a symptom, high blood glucose. You are not treating the cause, which is the metabolic dysfunction that belies the diabetes. So high glucose, lower glucose. That's treating a symptom. The high glucose is a symptom of the problem, not the problem. High LDL, treat the LDL. You're treating a symptom of the problem. You're not treating the problem. The problem is the metabolic dysfunction underneath. High blood pressure, treat the blood pressure. You're treating the symptom of the problem. You're not treating the problem. You have to work upstream of the problem to treat the problem. If you're treating the symptom, horses out of the barn. And while treating the symptom is better than treating nothing, the problem is still there and it's still going on underneath and it's still going to make you die. So having, fixing the problem before the problem occurs, preventing the problem is what we should be doing. And we're actually in a sense deluding ourselves that we're fixing the problem by giving these medications. I have to ask you about baby formula. It's almost <laughs> like a milkshake. There's so much, there's so much sugar in baby formula. Well, so it depends on which formula. So, I mean, there's lactose containing formula like Similac and Isomel, not as bad. Although it turns out Similac does have sugar in it. Isomel, not so much. Mead Johnson's done a better job than Abbott in terms of, um, uh, you know, clearing the sugar out of their, out of the formula. Lactose-free formula, so isomil, that's the big problem because what they did was they took the lactose out, they put sucrose in. So isomil is 10.3% sucrose. <clears throat> a Coke is 10.5% sucrose. It's a baby milkshake. So for parents that have to use baby formula, is there a brand or is it type that you happen to know offhand that you would that you could recommend like someone who adopted a child and well, they, feel they can't nurse right so obviously there's a reason for formula 
And it's not that I am against formula. I have to be for formula. I'm a pediatrician. Okay. If you didn't have formula, there would be a lot of babies who would be dead. All right. The point is the formula should be a last resort, not a first one. Okay. Like so many things in our society, we've, you know, done things for convenience. Okay. Formula should be a last resort. Um, I'm not here to, you know, promote or pimp any formula. Uh, what, what I would say is that there are a lot of kids who are put on lactose-free formulas who don't need to be. That's a common thing that pediatricians do is they say, oh, you know, a kid had a little diarrhea. Let's put the kid on a lactose-free formula. That is not a wise choice. You should be trying to use a lactose-containing formula. Um, and, and, you know, which formula I'm going to leave to, you know, the pediatrician's discretion. How about smoothies? You see these smoothie places opening up all over. People think they're going and they're getting health food. Right, of course. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. Is it a fruit smoothie or is it a green smoothie? So if it's a green smoothie, no fructose, because it's green. If it's a fruit smoothie, lots of fructose. The thing that prevented the absorption was the fiber. But as soon as you stick the uh, fruit in the Breville or the Vitamix or you know, whatever magic bullet or whatever you're using, okay, what you've done is you have sheared the insoluble fiber to smithereens. Okay? All that stringy stuff, it's gone because it has been just chopped up into so, such little pieces. You can't make that fishnet anymore. So you can't plug the holes because there aren't, there's no fishnet to plug the holes up. And so what it does is it increases the rate of absorption. And so you flood the liver. Now, it is true the soluble fiber is still there. You haven't destroyed that because those were globular. That's not going to be sheared by the blades. And the soluble fiber does have its own inherent benefits. For instance, it gets turned into short-chain fatty acids, which can be anti-inflammatory uh, by the colonic bacteria. So there is still a potential benefit, but the main thing is whether or not you set up that gel. And when you put the fruit, fruit in the smoothie machine, you ain't going to get no gel. You are done. So I think that is not such a good idea. Now, if you want to puree or you know smoothie your green vegetables to get them down because you refuse to eat them whole whatever have at it you know there's no fructose to limit the absorption of you're not going to flood the liver it's your choice so uh as we're getting close to the end just if you could give us your plan to get healthy i know it's really kind of simple eat real food and feed your gut, but if you could go into that in a little bit more detail. Well, okay. <clears throat> so if you go, walk into the grocery store, okay, you've already lost the game <laughs> because you are now under attack. I mean, you're under attack from end, every end cap and every sale item and everything that's in the store. You have to go into the store sing, with a single-minded focus, okay? It has to be a a, a, a moment of concentration, okay? What do I need, all right? And if you go in hungry, you're, you're, you're lost, okay? It's all right, you're already in trouble. You have to stay out of the aisles, 
okay? You have to shop the perimeter like they tell you. And even when you shop the perimeter, you have to be careful about shopping the perimeter. Like for instance, the yogurts on the perimeter in a, free, you know, in a refrigerator case, what kind of yogurt are you gonna buy? You're gonna buy plain yogurt, which has seven grams of sugar, all lactose, okay, fine. Or are you gonna buy a strawberry yogurt, which has 23 grams of sugar, right? You tell me, which one are you gonna buy? So you still have to be careful. Uh, there are still lots of, lots of things you can do to screw up your grocery store experience. Um, but if a food has a label, it is a warning label. Real food doesn't have a label because it doesn't need a label because nothing was done to it. The problem is that real food, number one, costs more. Number two, takes more time to produce, you know, to, to prepare at home. So that has to become sort of become a priority. That has to become important to you in terms of what you think your time is best spent doing. And most people haven't yet figured out that this is really important and that those, ex those extra minutes translate into extra years. And so you recoup it. Another thing that people don't understand is the role of exercise. And it doesn't have to be vigorous exercise. 15 minutes a day of walking will extend your life by three years. 15 minutes a day will extend your life by three years. Now, if you do 15 minutes a day times three years, you get 279 hours. That's 279 hours of walking in a three-year period. But you get three years. So let's forget about the sleeping time. Let's just do the, um, the, the waking time, okay? So 16 hours a day times three years. Okay, so that is a 5,500% return on investment. That's an ROI of 5,500%. Now, if you were in the stock market, how would you feel if I offered you a 5,500% ROI? Right. Okay, you'd be friggin' clicking your heels, okay? So that's a pretty good deal. And it does very good things for these eight subcellular pathologies that are underlying uh, disease. So if you ate real food and you walked 15 minutes a day, you are so far ahead of the game, it's not even funny. What could you do after that? You know, obviously food matters. Maybe some, you know, if you're old, you might need a supplement or two. There are, you know, for instance, vitamin D has been shown to be anti-inflammatory. It might actually be very important in this whole COVID-19 story. Um, you know, we're, we're working on that. Uh, and then, um, you know, yeah, and vitamin C, as an antioxidant might be helpful as well. So, you know, and, and oh, finally, omega-3 fatty acids, really important. No one gets enough unless you live on a coast and you live in a fishing village and you eat fish all the time. Yep. So that's it. Do you have a comment about helping to prevent getting COVID as far as uh, diet and nutrition? Well, it won't help you. Nothing will prevent you from getting it, okay? If you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're going to get it, okay? Ain't nothing you can do about it except, you know, social distance and wear a mask and, you know, wash your hands. That's how you prevent getting it. Well, if you got it, the way to prevent from dying from it, that's what we want to know. How do you die from it? Turns out, let's look at the three demographics that are at most risk, aside from the elderly, who have their own, you know, immune issues. Uh, Blacks and Latinos, obese, diabetics. 
Blacks and Latinos, obese, diabetics. Those are the people who have much higher rates of dying from COVID-19. What, what, what is the one thing that ties those three demographics together? Processed food. Blacks and Latinos, 62% more processed food than Caucasians. Obese, clearly, and diabetics. Diabetes, type 2 diabetes is processed food disease. So there are reasons having to do with the receptor on the cell called ACE2, angiotensin converting enzyme 2. That's the portal. That's the place where the virus injects its RNA into the cell. That's its entryway. And it turns out that insulin resistance makes ACE2 levels on your cells go sky high. So basically, you're giving your cells more places for the ACE2, for the virus to enter. Also, processed food, because of those colonic bacteria, can make butyrate. Butyrate is immunosuppressive, and so you can help suppress the cytokine storm. And then diabetes, because of the high blood glucose, seems to do something to that ACE2 that holds it open. And uh, also, it, it glycosylates that, uh, that spike protein that they're talking about, which seems to make it more virulent. So it's kind of like holding the thing open. So all three demographics uh, groups that are made worse by, uh, uh, you know, that have the highest uh, death rates due to COVID-19, it's almost assuredly due to our processed food diet. So real food is a great way to go, especially since this thing's going to be around for a while. In general, do you have a feeling about intermittent fasting? Yeah. So why does intermittent fasting work? Works for two reasons. One, it, clear, it gives your liver a chance to clear out the fat that was developed. And the question is, why'd the fat end up there in the first place? Because you ate crap, that's why. So if you ate crap, you wouldn't have any liver fat that you needed to get rid of. So that, you know, start with eating right, and then you wouldn't have to intermittently fast. But if you're already sick, intermittent fasting is a way to deal with it. The second reason that intermittent fasting works is because that intermittent fasting actually stimulates that process we call, talked about called autophagy. And autophagy is like garbage night. What it does is it clears out all the old dead cells. If you don't clear out all the old dead cells, guess what? You're living in a pigsty. And if you're living in a pigsty, okay, you can't build new proteins on top to sort of you know, re-engineer re, uh, you know, your cells to be, to be healthy. And so the process of getting rid of old senescent cells and you know, material that's been used up, okay, that happens um, you know, throughout your body, and it especially happens in your brain. And it is why you sleep. Sleep is garbage night for your brain every night, and you need it. And if you don't do garbage night, guess what? You die. So you know, this process of autophagy is extraordinarily important in terms of metabolic health. And intermittent fasting has been shown to induce the enzymes that stimulate autophagy. Which is your favorite way of intermittent fasting? Probably the uh, eight hours on, 16 hours off makes the most sense. And does it matter when the eight hours are? Um, I don't think anyone's shown that it matters. I think, you know, if you do like, you know, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., I think you're fine. I have to ask you one last question. Uh, I have a 10-year-old and I have 
obviously friends that have 10 year olds and these kids are, are addicted to these computer games, these yep. video games. I know this can't be good. Uh, can you right. tell me about the bad things about it? If there's anything good and how to get them from, from using them. Yeah. It's, <laughs> uh, you know, someone's going to win the Nobel prize. That's not going to be me. Um, <laughs> This is a problem. I mean, look, if something is toxic and addictive, we keep it out of the hands of children. Okay? Toxic and addictive, we keep it out of the hands of children. We keep alcohol out of the hands of children. We keep cocaine out of the hands of children. We keep heroin out of the hands of children. We keep nicotine out of the hands of children, right? There are two things that are toxic and addictive that we hand to children and call it love. Sugar and, and technology. All right. They're both toxic and addictive. And it's been shown. We, you know, we've got the studies to demonstrate how that is. But we haven't done anything about either of them. And one of the reasons, I think, is because the adults are addicted to. So the first thing we have to do is we have to role model for our kids. Because, like, why in the world should they stop? when we do it too. Crazy, right? Yeah. This, these video games, how addicted they are. It's, and, they're, and they're created to be so. Well, I wanna thank Dr. Robert Lustig. He's a wealth of information for joining me today. Dr. Lustig, if somebody wants to find you, I know it's not that difficult, but if they find not you, hard. Where, where should they go? So I have a website called robertlustig.com. So that's a good place to start. I'm on, you know, the internet in various places, LinkedIn, etc. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty darn easy to find. Uh, I do answer my email. Um, so, you know, and my email is not, uh, you know, unlisted. So you can find me pretty easy. Um, I, I field phone, phone calls and uh, emails from people, you know, pretty routinely, uh, as long as I have time. Right now I'm writing a book, so don't do it right now. I, I love that cartoon they made of you on your website. It's almost perfect. Whoever drew that, they did a great job. Yeah, good, good artist. Again, thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Robert Lustig. This is Dr. Kerry Gelb for Open Your Eyes. Until next time, thank you. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.